page six of your bulletin. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to, to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Thank you, Rachel. All right. Well, we are today continuing in our new study in the book of Corinthians. It's this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Corinth in ancient Greece. We just started this study last week, and so if you're new or just jumping in to our community today, uh, sorry, to, I mean, not sorry, not sorry, the train has just barely left the station. We're glad that you're here. Uh, I'm falling apart here. Uh, we better hurry and pray. Let's pray. We do need your help, Lord. Um, we laugh, and it's a good thing to laugh, even as I step into the pulpit here, because you call us not to take ourselves seriously. We call, you call us to take you seriously, your word seriously. It's a sober thing to stand before the word of God, but we need your help, so please come and speak truth and grace to us. Help us to see Jesus and his cross. For many of us, for the first time, for others, in a fresh way, in a heart-piercing, life-changing way. So please come, Holy Spirit, we pray now in Jesus' name, amen. John Lennon is known to have once said, it's not weird to be weird. 
or rather, it's weird not to be weird. And I don't know if you agree with that sentiment. Is weirdness normal or is it weird? But you might agree that his statement is an example of what we often call a paradox. What's that? A paradox is a statement that at first seems contradictory, but upon further glance or study actually turns out to be true. Here is another example of a paradox. Less is more. Less is more. That's true of perfume or cologne. Don't put on too much. A little bit is better. Don't say this to your neighbor next to you. Less is more. That's also sometimes true, they say, of the length of sermons. So let's hurry on here. Let me get to the point. In today's passage, the Apostle Paul proclaims a paradox. The paradox of the cross of Christ. There's something about the meaning of the cross that at first seems to be a contradiction in terms But upon further study, upon receiving help from God the Holy Spirit, we come to realize that it reveals unexpected truths. It's a paradox, this cross of Christ. Do you know the paradox of the cross of Christ? The reason why the apostle is teaching this is that, as you may remember from last week, that the Corinthian church has become deeply embroiled in conflict. It is a divided community. They had become more loyal to human leaders than they were to Jesus, and it was tearing them apart. But interestingly, here in this passage, Paul doesn't respond to them simply by saying, now come on, just be nicer to each other. Can't you just get along? As if their divisions were just a behavioral problem that they just need to muscle through. Rather, he tells them that their problem is not just behavioral. Their problem actually deep down is a theological problem. Their problem is how they see the crucifixion of Jesus, the paradox of the cross of Christ. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at this passage by seeing that it teaches us five propositions, five truths about the cross, about ourselves, about God. Let's find out what they are, and we'll just dive right in. Number one, first of all, this passage teaches us that human wisdom and human strength cannot rescue us. Number one, human wisdom and human strength cannot rescue us. Look at verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Quoting all these categories and roles that the Corinthians would have esteemed and respected so greatly in their Greek culture. The wise person, the teacher, the philosopher of the age. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God... The world, through its wisdom, did not, could not know him. Human wisdom and human strength cannot rescue us. Corinth was a city of high achievers, social climbers, which means it was something sort of like the city of Washington, D.C. 
the Christians there had begun to adopt the values of the surrounding culture more than the character of Christ. They'd become obsessed with influence and with power, social power, economic power, wealth, political power. They had become quite confident themselves in their intellect and their ability. So the apostle needed to remind them of a few truths, and we need to hear them too. And what are they? School smarts or street smarts aren't the same as spiritual smarts. We think we're wise, but we're foolish. We can't know God through human wisdom alone. And also this, CrossFit strength and resume strength is not the same thing as spiritual strength. You might have the former and completely lack the latter. We think we're strong, but in fact we're weak. We cannot save ourselves through human strength. We need to reckon with that today. Some of us have made it this far in life simply by exercising our strengths and our smarts. Maybe that's your story here today. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, you've never really truly confronted some moment of failure, coming to the end of your own abilities and resources. We're pretty confident in our abilities, aren't we? Uh, For some of us, this has even become our identity. We're pretty sure, for the most part, we're able to problem-solve our way around or through most of life's pains and problems. Others of us know we're limited. We don't really claim or dare to claim that we're strong or smart. But we're still pretty convinced that our lives would have been better if we were having no less a grip upon that value of human wisdom and human strength. If only I were smarter or stronger, then I would be happy. Then I would be successful. Then I would be wealthier. The cross of Christ, Paul tells us, brings all of us to the end of our self-reliance and unto the beauty and the freedom of reliance on God. As verse 21 says, the world through its wisdom did not know him. The cross confronts us with this truth that human wisdom and human power cannot save us. Second, the cross appears foolish and weak to the world. So not only does Paul tell us that human wisdom and strength cannot rescue us, He also tells it that the cross appears foolish and weak to the world. What's at the heart of the Christian faith? That might be a question you ponder throughout the week, your understanding of it. What's at the heart of the Christian faith? Well, it's the message that Jesus died for the sins of the world on a Roman cross. There he suffered the physical nightmare of the torture of crucifixion. And there he also suffered the spiritual nightmare of the judgment of God poured into his soul 
instead of ours, in our place as a free gift of love. But here's what we have to understand about crucifixion. That in the ancient world, crucifixion was graphically violent. It was disgusting. It was a nightmare, a form of execution and torture, but it was only reserved for slaves and convicted terrorists, never citizens. Even the word cross itself couldn't be spoken in polite Roman society. That's why verse 18 tells us, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For those who have not yet received the salvation of God in Christ. Verse 21 also says this. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, which could also be translated as scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See, the cross appears foolish. The cross appears weak to human eyes. Nobody could have seen that God would save the world from sin and evil through a cross of all things. No one, neither Jews or Greeks, Paul is pointing out to us, in the ancient world would have expected that God would rescue us in this fashion. No human culture naturally and no human being naturally sees Christ and his cross for what it is. We need God's help to see it for what it is. We'll get to that in one second. As one scholar put it helpfully, to the Greek mind, sophistication, philosophy, and learning were exalted pursuits. So how could one crucified possibly spell wisdom and knowledge? He continues, to the Jewish mind, on the other hand, there was a cry and a longing to be free. In their history, they had become attacked by numerous powers and often humiliated by occupying forces. Whether if it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans, Jerusalem had been repeatedly plundered and its people left homeless. What would the Hebrew have wanted more than someone who could take up their cause and altogether repel the enemy? How could a Messiah, how could a Christ who was crucified possibly be of any help in those circumstances? See, the Greeks were looking for something smart to save them. The Jews were looking for something or someone powerful to save them. And we're no different. When we start to search for the way to true meaning or look for true happiness or true fulfillment, what do we tend to expect? Uh, Tell me something sophisticated that I'm supposed to know. (laughs) Something that most people don't get, but you and I get. Salvation. The answer to life. The key. Or tell me something impressive that I'm supposed to do. Uh, Something that's tough, something that's, well, attainable, but at least something that gives me credit for having done it. Tell me something sophisticated I'm supposed to know. Tell me something impressive I'm supposed to do. 
the cross of Christ gives us neither. Because to human eyes and to human cultures, the cross always appears foolish and weak. But, number three, thirdly, in fact, the cross is true wisdom and the true power of God to save us. The cross appears to be foolishness and weakness, but in fact, the cross is wisdom and power for our salvation. It's what verse 23 tells us. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in verse 30, we're told this, Christ Jesus, who has become wisdom for us, wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. See, the cross appears foolish. When in fact it really is the wisdom of God. The cross appears weak. When in fact it really is the power of God. The cross appears ugly. When in fact it reveals to us the beauty of God. See, this is the paradox of the cross of Christ. It's the heart of the Christian faith, you know. It's the gift of life that's given to you through a death. It's mercy offered through the satisfaction of justice. It's spiritual power through weakness. It's victory through defeat. It's access to the beauty of heaven through the ugliness of hell suffered by Christ in our place on the cross by grace. Do you, friends, know the foolishness and the weakness of the cross? Or put another way, in looking at the apparent seeming foolishness of the cross, do you in fact see the wisdom of God? In looking at the seeming and apparent weakness of the cross, do you actually see the power of God to save us through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? You see, the power and the paradox of the cross is in fact the surprising reversal of all natural human values. It's not only itself weakness and foolishness, but it invites us to embrace and then embody that very weakness and foolishness if we're to see it for what it is. What I mean by that is one thing that's clear in this passage is that the only way that we can actually see the cross for what it truly is Going from the first couple of things that I said, that we don't naturally see the cross for what it is. We think it's foolish. We think it's weak. We think it's ugly. We think it's offensive. But then we can actually come to see that the cross is actually beauty and life and salvation and hope and joy. But how do you go from here to there? How do you see it for what it is? Only by the help of God. 
In several instances here in the passage, Paul is very clear about that. In verse 7, he says, 27, sorry, what's the difference in the way that you see the Christ? He says, but God chose some. He grabbed a hold of some people and opened their eyes to see Christ for who he is. In verse 24, he says, those whom God has called, is spoken into their life, raising them from spiritual death to life. It's what theologians call effectual calling. God speaking, raising you from the dead, and drawing you to himself. In verse 21, Paul says what was preached. He talks about what was preached. Those who actually would see and hear and receive the cross of Christ. You see the only way that we can actually see Christ for who he is. and The cross of Christ for what it truly is is by God coming in and giving us grace that we might have the scales from our eyes removed, that we might have light in the darkness, that we would see him for who he really is. Have you asked for that light lately? Have you prayed to God for that grace lately? Have you come to him with such humility of knowing there's no way that you can apprehend the grace of the cross with your human mind and by your human power alone. And of course, it invites us to consider this. How foolish and how weak are you willing to get in the eyes of the world in order to discover the wisdom and the power of the cross You see, because it's true, only those who actually can see the beauty of the cross for what it is are those who believe that apart from it, they would be counted among those that are perishing without Christ. That we're called to fall to our knees in helplessness, confessing that my mind, my smart, my intellect alone cannot enable me to figure God out. I cannot know God by my own power, and my gifts and my abilities and my resume and my moral strength is never going to be enough for me to love as God has called me to love, will never give me the power to be able to see the cross for what it really is. I need the help of God. You see, the key to seeing the cross for what it is is by by becoming foolish and weak yourself. Letting go of yourself, dying to yourself is the language that Jesus used. Daring to say, maybe for the first time for some of you, I can't. I can't. I can't. But here's good news. God can. Jesus did. The cross of Christ is available to you today to give you wisdom and power and grace. The cross is the wisdom and power of God to save us, but one more, two more things. Fourthly, the wisdom and power of the cross is revealed to people who are foolish and weak by human standards. Foolish and weak by human standards. As I mentioned earlier, the crucifixion was never a punishment for the elite, no matter what their crime. The wealthy and those who held high social status were never crucified. Crucifixion was always only reserved for those who had zero social standing. Therefore, in choosing to be, of all things, crucified, 
Jesus was choosing to stand in the place of nobodies. That's why L.L. Wellborn, a theologian, could write, in the cross of Christ, God has affirmed nothings and nobodies. Do you today feel like a nothing and a nobody? Look at the cross. God affirms you today. But Paul takes it one step further. He tells us that God deliberately chooses to reveal the wisdom and power of this cross to who? To the foolish and the weak in society. Look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And it's important that we're crystal clear that Paul does not say that not any of you who are counted among the redeemed were wise, not any of you were influential or noble of noble birth, or wealthy. Certainly, Christ calls people from a cross-section of the entirety of society. An 18th century wealthy woman famously once said that she was saved by an M in this passage because God says, not many, not not any. Even the wealthy and the powerful certainly have opportunity to find the grace of Christ. But here the apostle is drawing our attention to this, that God especially delights to reveal himself to the weak, to the foolish, to the ignoble. As New Testament scholar Don Carson puts it so helpfully, God delights to prick all the pretensions of this rebellious world where proud men and women parade their mighty intellects. God chooses the simple. Where wealthy people assess each other on the basis of their respective holdings, God chooses the poor. Where self-centered leaders lust for power, God chooses the nobodies because God chooses by grace. And why does he do it this way? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. So that it would be crystal clear that salvation is from God and not from us. So that it would be clear that salvation was by grace alone. God delights in surrounding himself with people that by the world's standards have no impressive qualifications whatsoever. In a couple of weeks, we will be gathered together as a global community celebrating the Winter Olympics, and of course, one of the marquee events in the Olympics is figure skating. And there's always some point in the contest where some controversy or questionable judgment arises when the announcers and the journalists begin to discuss among themselves, well, what are these judges' standards? Uh, What are they looking for in terms of technical ability and artistic ability? How did they rate that triple axle and toe loop and sow cow? I have no idea what I'm talking about. 
but I've heard these things. We're curious about the standards because we're curious about the way in which people get the prize. The way in which people are awarded the long sought after prize. If we looked at Team Christianity, and all we saw were powerful people and smart people and able people, we would rightly conclude that salvation was by human strengths and human smarts. Because whoever is standing there as the recipient of the prize tells you a little bit about the standards by which they were received. Let me say that again. If all we saw in team Christianity were the intelligent and the wise by worldly standards and the wealthy and the powerful by worldly standards, then surely we can conclude that God only favored the smart and the strong. We'd say, wow, that guy is really gifted. God must have been impressed. We'd say, wow, she's really wealthy or powerful or morally self-disciplined. But one thing we would never say is, wow, God is great. Which is exactly what God himself is getting after because it's in praising him that our hearts are most filled. It's why Paul says in the next verse there, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, boast in what? That salvation is by grace alone. It's a gift of God. It's not by me, my abilities, my strengths. God reveals the cross to the lowly things, the foolish things, the weak things, the nothing things of the world, so that we would know, verse 30, that it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, not because of you. It is because of his grace and his kindness, his mercy, his generosity, not your abilities, your power, your giftedness, because if he were to look to those things, all the things that are in you, in your moral, in your professional resume, to let you into the house of heaven, to let you into relationship with him, to let you into his heart, do you know you would never make it and neither would I? Salvation is by grace and that's the best news imaginable to moral failures like you and me, to people that run out of resources to love our neighbors, not to even mention our enemies. It's good news that God is a God of grace. Again, as New Testament scholar Don Carson puts it, the outreach of the cross, as measured by the profile of the Corinthian Christians, confirms the message of the cross. Salvation is God's free gift. Right? He's saying who's in the room confirms the story of the cross. You are a billboard of the grace of God. You're telling the truth about how generous God really is, how merciful and compassionate he is. Well, let's apply this for a second before we close. What does this look like? To believe truly that God reveals the wisdom and the power of the cross to those by human standards might be counted as fools or counted as weak. Well, number one, it has implications for our self-image. If you are someone here and you know maybe by worldly standards, I may not be that impressive. Don't you know that God's not looking at those things in order to be impressed with you? 
he's looking at Christ and he accepts you on that basis alone. You are an advertisement of God's grace to be able to say it's true. The world wouldn't choose me, but forget the world. God did. God loves me so, even if the world despises me. And if that's your story, guess what? You're in good company because that's the story of Christ. Loved by God and forgotten and despised by the world. It instructs us in the way in which we tend to and need to stop overlooking people in the church. The way in which we need to be more honest about the way that we really walk through even the pews and the halls of church communities and evaluate people based upon their social status, upon their wealth, upon the way in which you might perceive that they will benefit you professionally or relationally, or maybe even your self-image because you get to talk to such a person. This passage challenges us to step out of that vacuum of lies to enter into the reality that the church was always intended to be a community of virtual nothings who are becoming some things because God has placed his love and affection and honor upon you. To be a community where we celebrate from the greatest to the least with equal honor. Indeed, even more so according to the 12th chapter of this letter, which we'll get to eventually, In fact, that we honor those who in the world get less honor. Because we're fighting to make sure that we're operating as a community according to the values of God and not the values of this world. So who around you do you know is not getting honor as they deserve in the world? Will you honor them this week? Will you treat them as the important person, the loved person, the redeemed person in Christ that they actually are? Forget the world. Forget the standards of the world. Reverse them in this community and live in relationships that are redefined by the cross of Christ. Thirdly, of course, this challenges the way in which the church as a whole can become so lusty for social power. It's a narrative in the headlines that perhaps we've heard a lot of in the last year or two, but this question of whether or not Christians have an undue need to feel affirmed by the world, lusting for social dominance or for a reclaiming of social respectability. Paul reminds us if if we are people of the cross, if we are people of the foolishness and the weakness of the cross, then we should get used to being deemed foolish and weak in the eyes of the world. We need to get used to it and find the place of honor in those margins because that's where Jesus is at. That's where his redemption is at. That's where his church always was meant to be at. So we can die to and let go of our lust for social acceptance and power. We'll close with this quickly. Fifthly and lastly, the apostle tells us that the wisdom and power of the cross is revealed through foolish and weak means of communication. Not just revealed to foolish and weak people like us, but revealed through 
foolish and weak means of communication. That last paragraph there, chapter 2, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Of course, Paul is not saying that he did not actually care to communicate clearly or effectively. We have his letters. We know that he was a master communicator. What he's talking about was that he wasn't selling out to the pressures of speaking with the rhetorical patterns of his day, the high, elevated language of sophistication that was so celebrated in the Corinthian church in a way that was derailing them. Eloquence that was celebrated for its own sake. More than that, that was propping people up as having a higher social standing in the church and in the world because they spoke a certain way. Paul says, I'm not going to speak like that. I can, but I'm not going to. In fact, I worked hard not to. I almost, in a sense, dumbed down my message, not taking away truth, but to unveil truth, to communicate truth, so that you might not be manipulated by something impressive and start to think that God loves you more because you are impressive. Because you know how to speak impressively or because you know how to listen to impressive speech. It's a danger we all need to grapple with. The way in which preachers and teachers and speakers of the gospel need to take care in not drawing attention to themselves, manipulating people for their own personal gain. Something like some, something that people like myself or Pastor Yancey or other leaders in the church always need to humbly grapple with. But it also has to do with the way that you hear the preaching of the gospel. Are you listening for impressive things? Things that just make you feel smarter simply by having heard it. I can confess that I've listened to some sermons in that way as well. Where I'm just so glad that I could understand it because it made me feel better about myself instead of it making me feel better about the beauty and the truth of Christ. But the important application, I think, for all of us, because not all of you are preachers and teachers, of course, is that God reveals himself through foolish and weak means. That even the testimony and the stories that you share with one another, the ways in which you talk to each other in a Bible study setting or over a cocktail, the way in which you tell each other the truths about what's going on in your life, You don't need to speak with smart words, friends. Just true words. You don't need to find elevated rhetoric that makes you sound more holy. You, in fact, might be obscuring the power of Christ when you do so. You don't need to find the magic formulas to share. Some of you are not actually engaging in relationships. You have not shared your story of faith. You have not dared to actually tell a person about what you believe God says in the Bible because you feel like you need to impress them. You feel like you need to sound smart. You feel like you need to have wisdom by the world's standards. And Paul is telling you, you don't. You just need to talk about Christ in all of his beauty, in all of his simplicity, in all foolishness and weakness because God uses broken words. Because he used a broken body, uh, an ugly cross, 
to bring about life and wholeness and beauty. You see, that's the paradox of the cross, remember. The paradox of the cross that Paul gives to us that we might learn to be paradoxical people of the cross. Paradoxical people of the cross. Foolish and weak in the eyes of the world, but growing in wisdom and power day by day. Dear friends, is that something you're willing to be? By the power of God, because of the love of Christ. Are you ready? Will you be weak? Will you be fools? Together, because of the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would come and seal these things into our hearts and instruct us and bring us near to the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing.